Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, you ready? Let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is Value After Hours. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jake Taylor and Bill Brewster. Bill, what's your topic this week? My topic is uh, Bruce Greenwald's theory of service-based businesses and local economies of scale. That's a good one. And Jake, what are you doing? I'm going to be discussing if potentially oil prices spiking could be the pin that, that pricks the quote-unquote everything bubble. How about Om you, Toby? Ominous. I'll be talking about uh, Jack Henry and Associates. It's another uh, high-performance conglomerate, high-performance compounder. And uh, I got all the information that I read in it from the Intelligent Fanatics book by Sean Eddings and Ian Castle. So direct all questions their way right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Let's, let's talk about it. So today, uh, we're recording February 3rd. Tesla has blown through $700. It's $760 right now. At one stage, it was up more than 19 It was up almost 20% for the day. Um it's pulled back a little bit now, and we, I'm, this 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 show comes out in about ten days, so we don't actually know exactly where it'll be when it comes out. But all at nine fifty a share. <laughs> well, Four thousand is the price targets now, right? Yeah, I'm I'm starting to think that Kathy Wood is onto something. Maybe she's too conservative. <laughs> That's right. Boy, where do we start with that? Well, you know, a couple interesting things. One, I saw somebody tweeted like Tesla has added a Fiat Chrysler today. Wow! Right, like that's that's sort of crazy to think about. Uh, and two, like with a lot of these names that have like this far out duration cash flow that people are counting on, I I get back to the Buffett quote where he just goes back to just like basic math, right? And it's like, okay, so say you want a ten percent return on equity. You're paying 110 billion for Tesla's equity today. That it's should mean 30. With the the market cap is 130, the EV is 140. EV. No, no, no. The EV is like oh, 140 really? something. Yeah. Okay. So let's just assume it's all equity for purposes of this conversation, right? So you're like, in theory, it should be printing 13 billion of cash flow this year if you want your 10% return today. Yeah, and it's one. Now, I know that the real world doesn't quite work like that math equation, but if you're out of the gate down $13 billion on your cash flow target, the back-end duration better be huge <laughs> to make up for that. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. It's an extraordinary run, and I think it's sort of uh, – it's amazing the number of guys in the stream, in the Twitter stream today who – say um, basically what Tesla has demonstrated now is it's self-financing. If you think Tesla can be self-financing at any stage, then the short thesis is broken. And so there's no way that Tesla's a donut. It's not a zero from this yeah. point. My own Tesla Q might be broken. I Tesla don't know Q that might the be short 
the the short thesis is not necessarily broken. But then you get into shorting valuation, and good luck in that game. Right, that's the change. But I still think that it's got. I mean, it has to do a capital raise here, right? They they still need capital. Are they are they? We're not. We don't actually believe they're self financing, <clears throat> do we? Uh, I mean, look, I got into some sort of thing in my DM. First of all, to the listeners. Thank you for being engaged. I appreciate all of you. I've gotten really good comments, like legitimately. I mean, I know we joke about there being 10 of you. You 10 are rabid. Uh, <laughs> so thank you. And, and you know, bear with us if we make any mistakes. We're trying to do this in, uh, you know, in good faith. So I appreciate the back and forth. Somebody had written me that Tesla was a software company to which I said, like, look, I'm willing to be wrong on my short thesis, but like I'm not willing to buy that this is a software company. Um, but by that definition, and, every company is a software company, right? That's exactly right. Like, yes, you use software to deliver your product. I get it, but like that doesn't make you a software company. I think that means self, full self driving, right? That's the thing that makes the software company. But it's lagging in that area. It's you not. You still have to make cars and carry inventory and introduce finance. I mean, the complexity of running that organization is so much more difficult than software with marginal unit costs like it's just not the same thing um so anyway we got into it and i said if i was elon i'd raise like 15 20 billion here and then they got super mad at me and they were like well this stock's going to six thousand, so you know you'd be dilutive i mean i guess i you know i mean pick up bruce greenwald's competition demystified and just read about Mercedes and incumbents in auto industries, and maybe this time is different, but you're betting heavily against the base rate. I think that, that the shape of that Tesla tr- uh, price trajectory at the moment looks to me, without doing any statistical analysis on it, but just eyeballing it, looks to me like a Sornet wave. Oh, it looks like an efficient market to me, man. When they get rapidly bought like that? When every dip gets rapidly bought, not that there've been any dips, no pullbacks, but uh, it looks to me like that, and that's, and I think it's getting, it's getting close to the point where it breaks down. I hesitate to say that because that could mean weeks. But I was saying to Jake just offline before we came on, I've been looking at deep value strategies against other strategies. So what does it look like against momentum? What does it look against like against growth? What does it look like against low vol? And so. Nothing's doing exceptionally well except for low vol. So this is something interesting. Mm. Low vol has not been historically a way to materially outperform. What low vol does is it delivers what it says it does. It gives you a lower volatility return than the market, but you you, you pay a slight penalty for having fewer drawdowns. You get you get a smoother ride, but you don't you don't get as much of a ride. Except for the last five years, it's really materially outperformed the market, and it and it looks almost inverse to deep value. So, the Which, times is that a fa- is that a function of when I imagine low vol as like if it's up a little bit every day, which it kind of describes a lot of of securities prices over the last couple of years. Like it's just up a little bit every day. Does that then become a low vol? candidate yes it would be yeah so it's almost a momentum uh, on the back of it like underneath if you peeled away the layers it mean it, mean, it means it goes down less than the market when the market goes down and it goes it goes up a little bit less than the market when the market goes up it, it's literally okay. lower volatility relative to the market but in a market that 
it seems to have been going up much more than the market has over the last... I looked at it over the last five years. When I look at it versus my own strategy, the times when it really outperformed my strategy, and this is the, the long-only version of it, 2009 bottom, as you can imagine, doesn't draw down as much. So that's a real... There's a real mountain peak of low vol outperformance there. The other one is 2012, where value is quite weak through 2012, had a big peak then, and there's another big peak now. And the peak now is comparable to the 2012 peak, not to the 2009 peak. But I was I was sort of struck by how vertical it was. Like we're really at that asymptotic edge of the the, the vertical part of the asymptote where it's like really getting vertical. And that typically is close to it breaking down. When you're talking about your strategy in deep value, are you referring to like just a strict quantitative deep value strategy or do you have a short overlay on the back test that you're doing? I do both. Uh, yeah, I was, that's what I was, I'm asking. I was talking then about the, that's the long only version. The, the actual, because okay. the long short version is not market neutral. It's still, it's still heavily long biased. It doesn't look that different. It just looks a little bit uh, more exaggerated. So we're actually like a little bit peakier on the on the long short version that has it's still 100% exposed but it's got that 30 30 short portion attached to it. Yeah. It's I'd like very to give, peaky. Uh, give you guys a little more on that base rate that that Bill was just talking about. Um, I came across this little study that I found that might be might be helpful for some of us uh, but all right here are the numbers. These two professors uh, Riggins or Wiggins and Roofley, I guess I'm not sure how they pronounce it, but they looked at 6,772 companies across 40 different industries from 1974 to 1997. Now, what they looked for were superior performance within that industry and like how sustainable was that. And f in the population, five percent of the companies had a 10-year run where they were superior to their competition. Uh, a half of a percent had a 20-year run, and a 0.04%, so four bips worth, had a 50-year run. So across, that's like, that's three companies out of six, almost 7,000. Now, can you give the me the names of those three companies? <laughs> uh, I don't, I can't remember what they were, uh, but the they're unlikely to be the same ones going forward right um i'm but, just gonna check my portfolio and see all the big companies that are about to die thank you very much well it's more the question is um do you think that you have a one in 200 chance of picking the one that's going to be still an amazing company 20 years from now because that's what this base rate is saying do you have are you that amazing of an analyst that you know what the one in 200 looks like Maybe I'm sure there are people out there who do, but I'm guessing it, it's one in two hundred. <laughs> okay, well, if you're if you're the smartest person that you know out of the two hundred people, uh, then I guess bet on yourself. However, if you have any doubts about that, that a twenty year run is of that kind of magnificence is very rare, and the way that everything is priced today, a lot of these companies that are great today. It's, it seems very unlikely that they're all going to be great 20 years from now based on the base rates. The other part of it was that during this, the, the actual uh, chance of losing your superior status accelerated, it, by, it doubled over the course of the study. 
So like competition was getting harder from 1947 or 1974 to 1997, which probably fits a lot of like worldviews of globalization and uh, maybe technological change. So if anything, the, num- the base rate might be overstating your chances from this study. It was 74 to 97, so it was 23 years. Yeah. They need to do an update because that's 23 years ago now, right? 97 to 2020. It's probably due for an update. So it would be Math interesting to see. Out. <laughs> <laughs> so I got, a, I got a question. So if, you're, if, they, if, if your investment style is to try to find that the better company at a fair price, is it to find something that is better than the market averages at a price that is equal to or less than the market averages? Is that, do you think... Is that like the Fundsmith kind of approach, basically? Would that outperform? Like that, that probably outperforms, right? Yeah, I think it probably does. Problem is I mean, though, where's where is that that company that's trading at the market average right now? So I've been like hung up on Heiko since we talked about it. It's like the hot girl that I saw for the first time, uh, and like I think about since I just had my big introduction to Garp, right? And uh, <laughs> now I'm no longer a value investor, according to some people. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> Like, that would be the type of company that I could really understand betting on the duration. So, like, there, there's a point where the multiple, I'm not, please don't misconstrue what I'm about to say, multiple matters. But if you look out over 20 years, the fade of the multiple, the contraction in the multiple hurts you less if you're willing to actually take that dura- duration on a per annum basis, Right. So I think you have to be extremely confident in the growth path. And something like Heiko would make sense to me because you have some element of regulatory capture and they're not trying to hike price. So like I don't see them as being the people that are going to piss everybody off. So even if not like a regulatory, Yeah, that's right. Like even if there's some pushback sometime over the next 20 years – I don't know that they're the recipients. If anything, maybe they benefit because people say like you guys should everyone should do business like them. So that that would be the type of business that I would be more willing to pay up for. Now, how much are you gonna pay? I don't know. And you know, you really I, I think if you're not really willing to lock up the capital for twenty years and the multiple re rates on you quickly, you're screwed. I mean it's it's like any long duration asset once you know, the small moves cause huge price fluctuations in long dated bonds, long dated assets, generally all that stuff. So, um, I, I, that's, without mentioning you have to be willing to ride through the quotational contraction. That's to right. Get, and to get to the long-term return on equity. Yeah. And to be like, fine, the market re-rated this downward, but my initial underwriting was right. And I don't, you know, I'm not going to take Double this down. Massive, yeah, this massive. It just makes sort life easier to buy at a discount, though, doesn't it? Just to, like if you, that I would rather have the margin of safety be on my side. Where if I'm wrong on the long-term growth rate, I'm paying a little discount that already has that fudge factor built into it. That's or long so. Two thousand three, man. You that's need old to get... school thinking. Yeah, that's real yeah. old school. That's hurt my returns for the last decade. That kind of. Well, I think I think that what. I think a legitimate criticism of of some deep value I, I think where deep value guys mess up is like Gabelli is genius with his deep value with the catalyst because it unlocks what you think you see. Right? If 
buying deep value without a catalyst in an under-diversified basket, to me, you really risk falling into these value traps. And the IRR can just suck. Now, people will say, well, value in and of itself is its own catalyst. Um, I mean, I, I sort of get that, but I'm not sure I really... I think you can fall into ice cubes in deep value. And with growth, I think you can pay up and then you find out the growth isn't what you thought and you end up losing down the road. It's sort of a different way of finding out your bet was wrong. But I think it's just a different way of thinking. I think if you uh, have me, free cash flows... Oh, go ahead. Well, it's just if you have free cash flows and the company's buying back stock, you're going to get the re-rating eventually. That's all. Sorry, Jake, keep going. Yeah, I think that's fair. I was just going to say that the... I've I've never quite understood this term value trap. Like to me, it sounds so much like resulting, you know, in the Andy Duke sense of like, well, the ones that didn't work out were a value trap, and the ones that did were a good good value play. Like, the you don't know what's going to happen necessarily. You just know that as a population, if I buy enough of these type of situations, they yeah. tend to work out over time. Yeah, yeah. So to call one a success and one a failure is blind to the genius of the strategy. I agree with that. And I also think that that people mess up when they see rule number one is don't lose money. And then they look at like one one value bet and you lost money and think like that was not right. I mean, Buffett has said he would wager significant amounts of money on a coin flip if the odds were right. So that can theoretically violate yes. rule number one in an independent uh, trial. But over time, it does not violate rule number one. And I think People don't aren't some people are not thinking about a portfolio basis rather than an independent bet basis. Just look up ergodicity. That'll that'll help you Hopefully. understand it a There's little bit. There's been a lot of discussion of ergodicity on, on Twitter over the last week or so. I oh, saw really? it, I looked I it up that. like twice and I still can't figure out exactly what people are saying. It reminds me of law school when people started speaking <laughs> Latin and I was like, You're kinda of being a dick. Like <laughs> just speak English. Ceteris paribus. Yeah, Amicus. Non-secretary. Yeah, and you know the person that spoke Latin never knew his shit as well as the people that just put it in terms that everyone could understand. They just hid behind big language. Post hoc ego propter hoc. See, you lost me. <laughs> Whose topic are we going to do? Who's got a good topic? No, why don't you go first? <laughs> All right. I've, uh, I've been noodling on Greenwald speeches lately. Um, and it actually sort of goes to Jake's um, point and maybe some of what Toby was talking about earlier in, in that Greenwald's whole uh, theory of the case is that we are moving into an economy based on local scale advantages in service-based businesses. So John Deere is the example that he loves to, to talk about where they really understand the strategy of going in and dominating a local market. And then now with the data that they bring in-house, they they know or at least can help the farmers figure out what their soil needs and how they need to use their tractors and whatnot. And it's removed an element of cyclicality out of the business that used to not be there. And his theory of the case is basically that um, – those businesses are going to have more enduring economics, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. A local monopoly is going to do better than something else? 
Yeah, service-based service companies with local economies of scale is sort of how he, he would advise to to talk or to think through things. I It reminds me a ton of how Malone talks, right? Like Malone, everything that he talks about in scale is within the relevant geography, and he wants to beat you in his relevant geography. And it, it makes sense to me that strategy i mean that's what i try to look for that's one reason that i like ab InBev, despite what's going on in some of the end markets i mean beer is an incredible industry structure how so almost all of the markets are are consolidated and owned by two players and then you'll have a third player that maybe has 10 to 15 percent share but 60 percent of the share in almost all the markets are made up by two two people and if you uh, look at um, price taking throughout the industry. I mean, it's basically a cartel. So it's difficult to compete because you can't get distribution. Like you can come up with a better tasting beer, but you yeah. can't get it to the tap at the bar. Or you can't get it into the fridges at the supermarket. So you it just that's right. Or like a baseball compete. game. And then you know, in a world where marketing used to matter a lot more, they could spread the cost of the Super Bowl over more units. Uh, they can't exactly do that now, but. I, I sort of wonder with the internet going where it's going if uh, you know you, you ha I think it takes a lot less to, to meet minimum viable scale right if you just want to be like some brewer that's selling his beer in his restaurant you can do that a lot quicker maybe you can sell some stuff to your local market and buy some some internet advertising I guess on Facebook but like for real distribution I still think these big guys, can buy a lot more of the clicks. Like if Amazon is delivering to your house, I don't understand why AB InBev can't have a local brand that they're buying the advertising space on Amazon that you just click and you see, oh, it's made locally and it comes to your house. Uh, long long term, that's not an implausible outcome. So you're saying the only way to compete is at the local level. I think so. I think you got local and maybe regional. I mean, there's some regional players in beer, like, uh, you know, Hetty Topper is super big in in Vermont. Three Floyds is really big here. You guys have the people that do Pliny. Uh, but yeah. I, I don't think you can get, like, super regional brands. Uh, I think it's very, very hard without the distribution. I was. Uh, I met this guy last week who's doing something kind of interesting. I'm not going to say what industry he's doing it in. But um, he is white labeling a product that you use every day and allowing influencers to basically have their own version of it. Brilliant. So he's, he's capturing this so long tail of marketing that these people have been doing for 10 years now of building trust with a small little group and providing the they get to make their own blend of it like that's unique to them that they like and then they sell it to the people and this this guy just handles the the production and the shipping and like i think it's actually really smart hmm. i did wonder how all of those influencers all the bodybuilding guys had their own supplements and things like that that probably makes sense it's white labeling of products and there's a you know like a few companies behind there that are doing it uh it's so you don't, I don't have actually to have know if that's brand. what they're doing by the way jake and i haven't discussed that offline i don't know what this what the product is I used to, I covered food for a while when I was at BMO. And I mean, it, it's amazing when you start going down the whole value chain, it's like, oh, there's really only it's like, like one company. Yeah, like 10 yeah. big chicken companies and they sell all the chicken or, you know, like there's like three processors and they're just, 
you know, it, it was fun. We would have discussions sometimes about like financing equipment and how many chickens you could kill quicker. It's a sick life. You know, but you got to get your cost per head down. I saw something. What do we we kill like a million chickens a, an hour or something? In the US? Those machines are wild. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Yeah, me too. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, Jake's topic. What, what's what's your wait topic? wait real quick? The thing is, there's the 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 moat that has eroded right is distribution for the most part. So like now you can white label and get your you can get your distribution out to, you know, your influencing group, which is why I sort of think like Google and Facebook are just the tax on everything now, because like all those influencers, their platform is that Twitter has a really unique thing, but I don't know how you monetize it quite as well, but man, the interactions that I have on Twitter are crazy and it's, it's opened a world that would not be opened otherwise. Those things like the the problem for the platforms, Instagram, Facebook, so on. The next thing comes along. Like that's the platform changes because the kids don't want to be on the same thing that the olds are on. So TikTok blows up because they don't want to be on Instagram, which is all the thirty year olds. And then TikTok will have a run for a little while, and it'll be the next thing because the kids don't want to be on the thing with all the olds. I don't think not that... according to my DCFs in my uh, <laughs> in my spreadsheet, Toby. I mean, I, I Marcelo <laughs> Lima alerted me to the fact that Facebook is still uh, like the MA, MAU, the monthly active users, daily active users is still growing. I've got to say, I have a little bit of trouble believing it because I just don't know anybody who still uses it as often. When I when I check into those things, like there are a handful of people who use them all the time, but they're, they're largely ghost towns to me. Not, not Instagram, I might, obviously. I think it might be a little bit like McDonald's where no one wants to admit that they eat there, but they still eat there sometimes. Right, like they, no one wants to say that they're still going to Facebook, but I think Fair there's enough. enough people maybe still going. I don't know. That, I that, still that go makes occasionally. Sense. I'll I'll jump on the grenade. I log in and I look, <laughs> yeah. but I don't post. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, the the quality of the interactions has declined. I think fairly substantially. The other thing is like WhatsApp is awesome. So if that's count, I mean, I know that that's that's not disclosed. They do the Facebook disclosure and then they do the all their disclosures. Within the all our disclosures thing, like to me, uh, once they remove the Facebook proper disclosure and they just go to like what total global users or whatever, WhatsApp is going to distort all those user metrics a lot unless they figure out how to monetize them. I was talking to somebody last night at the Super Bowl that's got an Oculus, though, and he's, he was like pretty pissed that he didn't have his Oculus with him because he said that you get one NBA game a week and the Super Bowl – was in VR and he said it's like actually a pretty cool product. He said it's got a ways to go, but it's pretty cool. Hmm. So, no experience with that yet. I don't either. I mean, I think v- VR is potentially completely game-changing, right? Cuz you get VR, then you're not going to need necessarily a laptop, you don't need a desktop, you just need a powerful computer and you put this on and you've got you got a TV on the wall over there, desktop here. Like, yeah. It, it definitely changes the way we interact with it's, it just needs to get fast enough, and that's getting pretty close if it's not already here. That might be the biggest bite of software eating the world, right? Right. The person who controls that part controls the... That's the, the new metaverse, point. bro. Yeah. I'm still not sure what that is. Sci- I'm working fact. on it. <laughs> I've, I've I'm re- working on it. I've gone back and read quite a few of those older uh, sci-fi 
um, you know, William Gibson and uh, Neil Stevenson. They they were done, like uh, I just can't think what the the names of the Snow but, Crash, Ready Player One. Yes, yeah, Snow Crash, Ready Player One, and uh, th- there's a there's a few of them. They're all great. They they describe. Um, it's an interesting take on what they thought it was going to be, but it it doesn't make sense really until we get VR, VR proper. Ready Player One was just recommended to me, and I asked if it was similar to The Matrix, and they said not totally, but but sort of. I it's don't know. Young but I'll, adult, I'll watch. Though. It's young adult. Yeah. It's fun. All right, I'd, I'll I'd, check I'd, it out. I'd read Snow Crash, and I think that's being turned into a movie too. Oh, is it? That'd be good. That's, I'm not a thousand a percent one. sure we're not in Inception right now. I mean, this might just be a dream layer. I don't know. Elon Musk might have figured something out here. That's because you've been incepted. Yeah. I know, man. That's I'm questioning everything. There's only one way to get back to the real. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't even say that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Jake's my topic. topic for this week. Good transition. We, yeah. Before we say something we'll regret. Um, <laughs> it's too late for that, mate. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm sure no one got upset with anything we just said. We'll probably get some some uh, DMs that tell me how dumb I am to not know the metaverse and whatnot. And I appreciate all of them. Thank you for reaching out. We're more about quality over quantity of fans, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, man. The person, A couple people have reached out to me on Ali. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm not – I – just trying to find the truth, so thank you. Please keep doing it. All right, so my my topic this week is about, uh, you know, what if the uh, a spike in the oil price is what is the pin that p- pierces this, what some people have called the everything bubble. And uh, I saw this quote from Jim Poplava. I don't know exactly who he is, but he said that the price of oil is the new Fed funds rate. And... The idea behind that, that like the cheap oil has been what has really allowed us to sort of keep the party going here, um, maybe more so than than we would have ever been able to. So, you know, when you think about you think about the economy as a as a complex adaptive system and in the you know, the second law of thermodynamics, you're you're fighting entropy. So you have to take information and materials and energy to combine those in a way that fights entropy. And if one of those inputs is energy and it's especially cheap uh, for whatever reason, that can be a huge boon to everything that's happening within the economy, right? It's like, it's a prime mover in a way that maybe little else is. Um, But if you go back and look at, there's some really interesting kind of correlations when you look at the price of oil and then different prices of like, of indexes, um, you know, even going back, you know, the famous one is kind of 2008 because oil was uh, at it jumped up to like $150 a barrel in what was it May of 2008. That's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, different times. Crazy. So let's say June of 1973, which was also like kind of right before a big popping of a potential bubble really rough time in the stock market january of 74 or june of 73 20 dollars a barrel january of 74 so six months later it's 55 dollars. like it's Oof. it's more than doubled almost tripled uh ni- november 98 17 dollars a barrel august to 2000 50 dollars a barrel 
so we have all these little kind of interesting uh, interesting correlations. I don't know the exact causation, and I don't know how tight the linkage is, but it is an interesting thought experiment that if we were to see a, what would happen to all of these valuations today if we were to see a big a spike in oil price for whatever reason. Like I'm not I'm not smart enough to understand oil and all the inputs and like make any kind of predictions about the price, but if I was a if I was if I had a lot of long duration assets that might be repriced and I was uh or if I was an index holder and I saw the price of oil going up dramatically, I would probably start to feel a little bit nervous about about where we are. Um, and one more thing to add there, if you, wouldn't it be kind of an interesting uh, scenario if the price of oil was to allow all these energy companies who have been just absolutely sucking wind that a lot of value guys have gotten caught up in and beaten down by. And what if that was what brought value back to like kind of winning again uh, because they, you know, the energy assets at $150 a, an air, a barrel start to like make look pretty attractive again. And it, it causes a repricing of all the other things in the world that are dependent upon the energy. Uh, all of a sudden, like we've really, you know, tipped the scales from one side to the other in an interesting way. So chew on that one, guys. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? What's, what's more important? Low, low, prices for money like low can you borrow cheaply or low energy prices i guess they're both very important but not every business is necessarily borrowing all the time what if one leads to the other well hold on like low prices of money do not create any new material wealth they don't create new information they don't create more energy and they don't create more material to make your multiples I go up. I think they might actually create more energy. Because you have a lot of people when the opportunity cost to capital is low that might be willing to finance a lot of exploratory uh, projects that otherwise they would not be willing to. I will concede that it may pull things from the future forward. But by themselves, I don't believe they create wealth of any kind. Well, there must be. That, that can't be right. Because there must be projects that aren't financially viable at one interest rate price and are financially viable at another one. So if it's cheap enough, and that's not necessarily pulling forward from the future, that's just something that is, it's it's viable at one level and it's not viable at another. Mm. I have to think about that. Yeah. We're getting very theoretical here. Bill, don't, act, are, don't, don't act like you said it. No, I did not. <laughs> I didn't. I think energy is somewhat interesting. Not, I, I mean, here, energy fin, fintwit, please come at me. Shout out to oh, them. They're one of the funniest fintwit groups. Don't call out down there. the thunder. Don't call down the energy thunder. <laughs> no, no. I, I actually, uh, and it's, I like Kyler it's Kyler Hassan's idea, but I really think he might be onto something. Uh, the, like the big MLPs, like uh, Enterprise Products and um, Magellan Midstream. Like you talk about a hated asset class and then a hated structure within that asset class. And a beaten and down input. It's really not a terrible business. You're not in the EMP business. You're in the transportation business. And I mean, I don't care what millennials think about what oil should do. We're not getting off oil anytime soon. Uh, and, and EPD is more natural gas, which is so, a cleaner a cleaner thing to burn than oil and they're so just to it. give you an idea of what the global 
global energy usage looks like today, in case you don't know. Um, 32% is oil, 26% is coal, 23% is gas, 9% is electricity, and 10% is biomass. So the, the energy that we use on this planet is still very heavily... We're still very, very much in hydrocarbon game. Dude, the authorities tried to stop you again. You went back into the matrix, but you're right. My buddy just got a Tesla in Denver, and my other buddy and I always tease him. I'm like, oh, good, the coal plant is powering your car. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, natural gas needs to take share from coal. That's got to happen. That, what about that nuclear? Where's nuclear? It's not that politically viable, but it should be. I mean, that's, from my I think limited... that's counted in the electricity number there. Okay. That's interesting. I, I'd never known that there was that much of a, a connection between the timing of those spikes in the oil price and the collapses in in indexes. But you know, we've got we've had very low oil price prices for an extended period of time here too. And I own some energy um, because it's all beaten down, and everybody thinks it's going away. And I don't know if it is or not, but it's it's certainly priced that way. And so, if it isn't, you're going to get paid. My buddy that made a fair amount in oil uh he thinks that we're pretty range bound and that the the fracking industry has sort of shortened the cycles so somewhere north of 60 like the amount of latent supply that they can just flick on is crazy and then you know below 40 it just doesn't really make sense now i know like people like chanos uh have said that there's never been free cash flow in the industry i I have no idea. Jim is, I should, I should call him Mr. Chanos, is way smarter than me. Um, but my buddy has said, he's like, the problem that Wall Street either doesn't understand or there's a disconnect between how we're doing it on the ground is the game isn't really a free cash flow game. The game is prove your reserves and flip it to an oil major. So uh, Shouldn't they least, get the free cash flow though? You would say eventually, yes. Um, so, you know, I, yeah. The thing that, you, the thing that, uh, you know, like, like price sort of leads sentiment in, in oil and gas, it seems to me that there's no discussions of peak oil when the oil price is really cheap. You get discussions of peak oil when the oil price is really expensive. And then people say, you know, whatever the, there's some tiny, tiny margin, right? We produce, these numbers are yeah. wrong, but we produce a million barrels of oil a day and we consume like a million barrels of oil a day. So that, like the margin is just absolutely minuscule. So if you get it a little bit wrong one way or the other, the price goes up pretty rapidly. And so you get these discussions when the oil prices, like I remember it, I remember 2008 very vividly in relation to the oil price as well. Just those big, it moved like Tesla did today. Like it used to be, used to whip around like that. And that yeah. was when that people were very loud about peak oil. It happened 10 years before that too, like the late 1990s, there was something similar going on. I, I kind of think that you know when oil price when the oil price is low, yeah, there's lots of supply around, but it doesn't. We're going to move up a little bit, and then I bet you we're having a discussion about peak oil again. Somewhere, For Kyle sure. Bass is listening to this, pulling his hair out because he claims he counts the best oil barrels out of anybody. I've heard him say that before. He's like, we have the most accurate count. So, Kyle, reach out to us. Let us know, please. <laughs> You're, he's a listener. Shout out to Mr. Bass. <laughs> No, I, I, it, I don't know. It's um, Oil's interesting. It's interesting how hated it is right now and how loved it was in the past. Not that long ago, There's 10 no years barriers ago. To, 
somebody on Twitter said that it's like tobacco. It's not at all like tobacco. Uh, there's like no barriers to entry. You don't have pricing power. It's not consolidated. I mean, quit it with that nonsense. Oh, but they limit tobacco there in the violent, sense that people but... hate it. Yeah, well, that's that's the it's politically that's where it Yeah, it gets it's getting dropped out of every ESG fund, right? Yeah, and that makes some sense. And even Kramer, like Kramer, recently was saying, you know, oil's I'm out of oil stocks. His reasoning was no one's going to buy them. Well, no, yeah, and that that a lot of money managers that are trying to impress younger people don't want to hold oil. Like, I mean, all right, I'll buy it at the right price. Uh, yeah, and take a ten percent dividend or something along the way. Yeah, because no one wants it. to own it. Well, that's I mean, that's sort of why I'm intrigued by the MLP idea. I'm not in it for ESG. I'm in this to make money. I'm trying to put food on the table out here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll donate some trees or something. You can you can buy carbon offsets. I saw that the the uh, Bernie's campaign. I spent a few million dollars on flights, and for thirty-two thousand dollars, you can offset it all with um, a few million dollars in private flights. Thirty thousand dollars offsets it, so it doesn't seem to me that that's it's that big an issue. Like that's that's a tiny. That's what one and a half percent covers Cost. your. Uh, that's your that's your carbon credits. It's sorted out. What, what are we worried about? Sorted. <laughs> that's it. Let's 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 move on before we get too much hate mail to uh, to yeah please. So I'm talking Jack Henry. It's another uh, high performance compounder because that's what I'm obsessed with at the moment. It's a very interesting story. It started in '77 by two guys who knew each other, Jack Henry and uh, Jerry Hall, not the model who's married to uh, uh, Murdoch, uh, another guy with the same name. They're in uh, Monet. Monet, I don't, it's in Missouri. It's a little town in Missouri. Each one. Oh, it's Manette. Manette. I was guessing. If I, it's Missouri, I, I didn't think they'd be. Oh boy, hate mail. I, Shout I, out to Kansas. Oh wait, Missouri. Kansas sorry. City. Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, they were the only two. <laughs> they had to each had to program. They had to learn software coding. It's like a little farming. Farming. Shit. I have. I know nothing about this. This company. This this town, other than what I read in Intelligent Fanatics, Sean Eddings and Ian Cassell, send the hate mail to those guys about the description of the town because that's what I'm talking about. I'm sure it's a beautiful little town. I come from a little country town. I'll continue on. They, were, they both had to learn to code for their jobs and they were the only two guys in town in 1977 who knew how to code. So they used to get together right. for coffee to lament, talk about coding problems, lament the, the lack of kind of community for coders they both got unsatisfied with their jobs got out decided to get together one of them worked for a bank installing ibm coding ibm for for the bank and so they they started and he, he kept the rights to the source code there is the key same mm. thing that got bill gates started hold on to the rights for the operating system so he got the rights to the code so the business started out providing information technology services to little community banks because they didn't have any way of tracking all the relationships that somebody might have with mm. with the banks. They just didn't know. Like you could have a car loan and a house loan and they had no idea that you were the same person. So they were trying to bring some sort of better tracking, that kind of stuff. The business grows very quickly because they've got this great culture that basically they just look after their employees. They get to a stage where they've got private planes. They fly their employees on the private planes to engagements. If somebody's sick, 
they'll fly them to the hospital if it's a, if it's a someone they know family they, they they just basically look after their employees they there are periods of time where it's tough the employees have to take reduced wages uh jack henry and jerry hall cash their checks on alternate weeks so that they're still being paid the checks but the company doesn't have enough cash at the end of that once they get through they give everybody a thousand dollar check and say which evidently makes up for it and more whatever had been lost so very focused on uh looking after the the the, stakeholders yeah the employees and they hope that the employees look after the uh the customers they they basically hire uh sorry they they promote two guys internally. Real quick, sorry, Toby. Were they public at the point that they were doing this? No. Do you still, know, or were still they still private. doing this private? I think the, the culture has continued on. Like it's a it's a point of pride for them that they have this culture. But this this is before they go public. Okay. They go public in about eighty five. So they started out nineteen seventy seven, hundred and fifteen thousand dollars in sales, nine thousand dollars in profit. Two thousand sixteen. This is according to the book. One point three five billion in sales, two hundred and fifty million in profit. It's a good business. They start, they two guys who start as high school students eventually end up kind of running the business. These two Mikes, Mike Wallace and the other gentleman whose name I can't read my handwriting. They have this. Um, that's when the acquisition strategy kind of kicks not off. Gonna, not gonna work here anymore. <laughs> not, gonna, not, gonna, not gonna work here. <laughs> Sorry. So they start. Great they movie. start buying, but basically they. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> You guys have derailed me. Hey, no, sorry. Uh, the uh, the acquisition strategy starts in the nineties, and basically they have this the arbitrage. If anything, it's kind of like a cultural arbitrage. They they buy these companies. They get the employees all together. They say we don't have any. We're not going to have any layoffs. Here, new employees. All the new employees get a thousand dollar check, and then they get them together in this place where they get to meet all of the existing employees. And the existing employees say this is a much better way of living, and we the whole enterprise is going to be better as a result they give everybody amazing levels of autonomy company went public in 1985 um so they've i think they've acquired according to the book they'd acquired 50 companies by that stage this is not so much a discussion on their acquisition strategy just a discussion on on the importance of corporate culture and sort of treating folks the right way which I, you know, the funny thing is, I kind of regard a lot of what they were discussing in the book. I just think is is kind of par for the way you should treat another human being. I don't see, it. I wasn't going through and counting up a lot of these as like birdies and eagles, but I, I appreciate that like some companies go through and there are rounds of layoffs, and these guys just refuse to do that sort of stuff and so on. I I, uh, <clears throat> I think, well, that culture may be one of the most anti-fragile things maybe in the universe if if you really think about it from like a biology standpoint and sustainability um this idea of win-win um that some people propose just makes so much sense to me and it's kind of shocking that you don't see it more actually um even the big companies that we celebrate today have a fair number of win-lose relationships uh and that make you wonder how sustainable it truly is uh you mean like so uber's an example of win or lose right because the guys who drive for uber are potentially like the it works out to maybe it's like uh minimum wage uh yeah i mean don't you dare talk 3g don't you well, dare <laughs> 
one of the one of the stakeholders in in the that universe is regulators and uber has been famously gave the middle finger to regulators this entire their whole existence basically right or at least until very recently that's that is a that's not sustainable right eventually someone's going to get tired of that happening and they're going to make a dramatic change that they that could potentially wipe them out um so i i think you you can't really rest your your hat on on sustainability unless all the players in the ecosystem are are doing are going are feeling like this is winning and want you to win as well is uber an example of something that like the regulatory system was a problem right because the taxis there weren't enough taxis around the taxis weren't good enough when you got in they hadn't there was no modern you couldn't pay with a credit card all that stuff that's pretty basic that uber hasn't done anything again that amazing but it is a far superior product yeah well the taxis were regulatory arbitrage right i mean it was like supply constricted and people were paying people that was bs i mean i sort of understand why uber did that we uh, jake and i actually talked about this earlier this week and he had brought up 3g as an example of somebody that pushes their suppliers maybe too far and eventually that that could bite them which is why I, i made that comment um i i think uh the, the culture thing is something that I was thinking about because on our last podcast, you had asked, isn't that replicable? Um, one, I think it's super interesting that we're talking about a Missouri company. I think Brent Bishore is in the process of doing this again. I, I tried to give him money. He didn't need my money. That's fine. If he ever goes public, I'm going to give him money. I, I think Brent Bishore is legit the real deal. Uh, and, you know, I don't hang out with him normally. I might be wrong. But we've hung out a couple times, and he's a really impressive individual that I think is worthy of the praise. Um, and we were talking about Markel, and like, you know, Tom Gaynor is who everybody knows. But like, one of the guys, Dan, that he hired, that guy's background was from Grants, or or at least, he, yeah, yeah, he had written for Grants. That wasn't his whole background, but that's sort of a different mind frame. Bringing in Sarab to me is incredibly smart. Like. Sarab is a, a gem of a human, really, really intelligent and and interested in things. Brings a tech background, has is a gateway to India. Like, there's just a thousand ways to win, and I think that when you when you have someone that's looking to hire other people like that, right, it, that is interesting to me, and that creates conversations internally that I think make the organization much stronger. So let me ask you this: Do you, does the does the market misprice those kind of situations? I don't know that it's mispriced. I I know that I have an allocation of Markel because I want to be partnered with those guys. Uh, I think that they are reasonably good at business, and I like the way that they look at the world. So if I'm going to give my money to somebody, uh, some of this is almost like Guy Spear. There's some metaphysical attraction yeah. to you know whatever, but like. I want them to succeed. I think they will succeed. You know, the IRR may not be as perfect on a spreadsheet as uh, you might want, but I bet that the outcomes are higher than what you've underwritten in an organization like that. Uh, so that, I mean, that's why I made that bet. Um, well, that's the question: is like, do you 
does something about the characteristics of the business give you a better chance of of winning than what the market maybe even appreciates about a culture, especially if it's earlier on and it's harder to see the amazing things that can emerge from the the soup of the correct uh, ingredients? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look at so go back to be sure, right? It's early. He's not public, so I don't know what you know the valuation of his company or whatever is, but that guy has it right i mean he's he he's not selfish he's uh he's f- focused on the long term i bet in 30 years people are like you know he did really big things if he wants it he may not want it in 10 years he may be like all right this was a good run it's over but um yeah i think i think very permanent equity then yeah <laughs> well his company could go on and he could become chairman or something I know, i'm like just that. teasing um I just, I just think that whatever the valuation is that you're paying today, I bet it's a pretty good bet, uh, unless it's just something completely egregious, which I doubt it is because I know some of the people in there know what they're doing. I do think that there's something about – I think that companies have a little bit of momentum at the corporate level in the sense that if there's a company that – if their thing is we're always profitable and they go through a very tough period, they just find a way to maintain profitability through those tough periods there's a company that loses money all the time like they get really good at just finding ways to mess it up when they get a lot of money coming in the door and i do think that there's something about like if you're it's it's like a behavioral you can be explained through behavioral in a like just maintaining consistency with the world this is what you guys are the problem is it creates sometimes you know fake profitability creates fraud and things like that they're trying to catch up to something else but if you if you satisfied with the integrity of the guys and you like the momentum of the culture and of the business then they're just going to find a way to win i think yeah and if you lose at least you lost with a group of guys that are trying to find a way to win the right way i mean i don't like i don't know there's no guaranteed outcomes in life i don't know why if you find that culture in a reasonably priced bet why you wouldn't take that versus maybe a different culture that's a little bit cheaper to me uh, is probably less good value over the long term. I think it's a good discussion. I think we're coming up. We've got a gigantic mailbag as always. I don't think we're going to get through the entire mailbag today, but we're going to, we're going to, I think we've got time for three. So here's, here's the first one. Uh, One topic for further discussion could be the monopolization of the market and its consequences for investing I find it amazing there are only half as many public stocks trading in the U.S. as they were in, say, 1997. And for those remaining, just five FANG stocks, that's F-A-A-N-G, accounted for 25% of the growth. I think Dammer Darren mentions this number in his latest update in the last decade. That didn't sound like a question, did it? But that was, uh, yeah. So, what, what, what <laughs> I mean, you... rates need to go up. This is, Ken Fisher nailed this in, like, 2009. He wrote an, a letter that was like, buy the shit out of stocks. He didn't say shit, but I bet in a conference he did. Uh, it, he he just said buy stocks because fundamentally it just makes sense to recap your company. And like the cost of equity is so much higher than the cost of debt now with rates down here that, that the supply of equity is going to go away. And he was completely right. And then And then you've got organic growth slowing. And with with rates here, you've got a lot of M and A 
And then private equity blew up, you know, because obviously active management and equities is the dumbest thing that anyone could ever pursue. So why not lock it up and give it to people with perverse incentives for 10 years? We'll see how that all turns out. Uh, but they're going to need to exit someday. So unless they're just going to trade stuff and all mark shit up together, which they may do. But those companies will come back out at some point. So, you know, I'd be careful buying from them, though. I, I like this uh, interesting metric, which is number of stocks divided by number of holds. So imagine, like, how many stocks are there and how well picked through are they by maybe someone who's a uh, reasonable judge of, of the company. And that number has gotten very disadvantageous over the last couple decades. A um, lot more CFA holders, a lot less stocks. You probably would predict a more efficient market in that world. So that's that's not encouraging. That's I think that the the, the thing that's driving the, the the reduced number of stocks is Sarbanes Oxley. There's like a materially it, it you need to be much much bigger to be listed to pay the million dollars or so a year in in uh, compliance costs, and you know there are now additional risks. And so why wouldn't you just take money from private equity and do it that way having said that the stock market is still much bigger now than it was uh when all that started about 20 years ago so it's easier to list overseas i think there are going to be a lot more companies listing not in the u.s it's just u.s listings we're talking about here and there are other first world countries that have strong rule of law deep capital markets that can absorb companies and i've seen that in australia there are u.s companies listing in australia all the time um, because it's a lower yeah. listing standard and you get on the big board, you get ASX, you're not like on you're not on the venture exchange in Toronto and you're not on the AIM in the UK, you're on the big board with lower listing standards and you get access to all of that um, super fun money down there. I, I don't know that there's anything that can be done about it. I think it's just one of those things. At some stage, they're going to tra- change some other law and there'll, there'll be a... Somebody get worried, there'll be a Jobs Act hold the listings out of nowhere yeah. then we'll be lamenting that 10 years after that a, a cambrian explosion of, right. of new businesses going public i mean it, it just feels to me like all the allocators if if you are at a pension fund or some endowment or something you lose your money if you pick the wrong public equity or you lose your job if you pick the wrong public equity strategy so just index and then your job's safe. And then you go out with the private equity guys and they are showering you with nice meals and you can say, oh, well, I have access to all these deals that no one else can have access to. And you shower them with money in return and you can justify your existence. I'm really, I'm looking forward to 20 years from now seeing who does better. Uh, You know, and I mean, I guess it's index and then I'd like to see active stripped out of the closet indexers because screw those people uh the closet index, like, is, index is stripped out of active yeah that's right yeah. like you know get that nonsense out of here but like true active management against private equity and then an index against private equity i'd like to see, i'm looking forward to i got a longer famous also, last words that first question mm-hmm. was from uh mikhail uh thanks very much for that question it was in it was written in cyrillic i think is that the uh russian uh, I, I've had a little bit. I had to stick it into Google Translate to get Mikhail, Michael. So thanks for that. Uh, here's the the next question from Bruce Carlini. 
Bill seemed to mention, I didn't quite understand in obita. There we go, Bill. There's a little bit of uh, Latin legal term for you, obita dicta. You ever encounter that? Nothing. If it's no. not the decision, it's obita. I barely knew her. <laughs> <laughs> Just for anybody who actually cares, well, obita dicta is the stuff that's written in the decision but doesn't actually, uh, that's not law, it's just the commentary. So Bill discussed in commentary last week that you don't want to be on the other side of Brookfield, vis-a-vis, here we go, V-A-V. There's lots of Latin in this one, Graph Tech. EAF is a darling of the value investor community right now thanks to Pabrai's Roadshow, and it's worked on me. But Bill is smart and he's saying uh, what, what early retiree is saying on Seeking Alpha, minority shareholders are actually betting on cash flows which currently almost totally flow into Brookfield's pockets. Is that the issue? Yeah. I, look, man, make your own bets. Uh, don't follow Pabri. Don't follow me. Do your own work. And, uh, you know, to me, I thought that Brookfield had gotten the $22 uh, a share. It did not. I issued a correction on Twitter. I think it was $13 a share that they ended up um, getting getting bought back. I have this is all scuttlebutt. I don't know Bruce flat. I don't know anyone at Brookfield. I don't know anything when it comes to this, except for my perception. Um, I would rather be on Brookfield side of everything than be on the other side of them. And that's how I see it. And EAF may really work out. It's not really the type of entity that I'm looking for right now. So I probably have a bias against it anyway. Um, I don't understand why long-term, they're necessarily going to win. Uh, but, you know, like the, the shipping man with the five, that guy's got a great thesis on it. So there's two sides to the trade. I didn't mean to try to scare you out or anything. I <clears throat> When I think about that one and I think about risks and losing permanent capital, in that situation where I – if I'm, I'm not an expert in this one either, by the way. I haven't done a ton of work on it. But the – I think Brookfield owed something like 80% of the company and yeah. we're all just sort of like along for the ride on the other 20%. I know of a different time where the price of something that they had a similar situation got got cheap and they ended up buying it yeah, out. Yeah, you get taken price. under. Yeah. So one of the ways that you can definitely lose is if the price was to go down enough, they could take you under, in which case... You know, that that is a very real risk that you have to price into it. If it never goes down, I think you probably can win pretty well based on what is it like a four or five times P.E. or something of a business that I sounds like might be pretty reasonable as far as uh, they're like vertically integrated in a way that the other competitors aren't. And they have some kind of like supply access that others don't. OK, I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, they've got they've got take or pay contracts. Everybody likes that. Right. Yeah. So as good as the creditworthiness of your counterparty, though, that's not. I mean, that's fair. set in stone in the steel industry. Yeah. So you're if it if it goes poorly, it may go very poorly. So it it to me it doesn't sound like much of a dondo bet. Like tails, you will lose a lot. Potentially. Good. Good. Yeah. You could. Very. Yeah. I mean, there's not. You couldn't say. Well, I couldn't have seen that coming, right? There's a precedent already. So. People are going to hate us after this. I People know. love EAF. I mean, how dare, you know, I get it. Those are good thoughts. Uh, in the words of the great man, I have nothing to add. So here's another yeah. one. Arbitrageur. Uh, 
When you were starting out, or even now perhaps, did you have any private personal money run by other managers? Who was the manager? What type of fund? Value, I assume, mutual fund, ETF, hedge fund. With the same thinking, who are some smaller managers or super investors whose 13Fs you pay a lot of attention to? Besides Sardar, Big Larry, of course. That's right. Uh, Never heard of him. The answer is, yes, I did. I'm not going to name them because uh, we parted and they have a very good reputation and I'm sure they tried to do a good job, but it didn't work out for us. Um, They were a value manager um, and... You know, I, I, people that I am starting to morph into following are more guys like Acri and Russo, although, you know, his stuff's a little bit bigger. Um, but, you know, I, I like Ensemble. Those guys are really smart. Um, you know, I'd, I'd pick people like that. Funsmith, you know, that's, I mean, I'm like becoming like a quality compounder, bro. It's so depressing. <laughs> It's like everything that I've railed against forever. But I do think there's a lot of merit in it. So here I am. Jake? Um, I mean, I'm always looking for people who I think are doing smart things. uh, And whether I can team up with them by putting money into a business that they are managing or whether they are managing funds that they're selecting the businesses like i don't the layer of abstraction from business and investment can vary depending on what the vehicle is but you know i'm always trying to imagine different and find different people who i'm like you know what i would be very comfortable with that person managing 10 percent of my net worth or whatever the number is um to anything other than that is to assume that I understand the world better than all of these people. And like, I'm the one making all the decisions and I'm, I'm actually not comfortable with that. So I don't, I don't want to name names at this point. Cause I'm still always looking to add and, and, but if you wanted to share names with me, I would, that would be great. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Like I, it's, it's all the same people that, that you probably already know. Um, I don't have any unique special people who I'm hiding, but, but it, it really is it's very idiosyncratic to you of what makes sense to you also. Like there's some approaches where I'm like, eh, I just can't quite get there with them, but other ones that I'm like, oh, that's perfect. Like I love what they're doing and I would, I would give them money to feel baby. So it's no different than almost deciding what business that you're comfortable investing in. Same thing with the people. So I, I, the reason that I parted from my manager was they had bought some stocks and the stocks had gone down substantially. And I called them and I said, buy more. And they wouldn't. And the reason that they wouldn't, what, the, the answer that came back to me was portfolio construction. And what I said to them is, I'm not asking for standard portfolio construction. We have like an SMA agreement. Uh, separately managed account agreement. I'm telling you, if you're not wrong to buy more here because it's better value. And if you're wrong, that's sort of a different discussion. And it that conversation happened two or three times. And then last December happened and they just didn't buy anything. And uh, it was it was just, uh, it had been five years. So what I would say is like, have it's really hard when you're young or or green, like inexperienced to ask the right questions of the manager. But I think those are really important questions to at least think through is like, okay, well, let's say 
you buy something and it sells off hard, are you going to buy more? Are you more worried about sort of portfolio construction or are you comfortable being concentrated? And then think through, am I comfortable being concentrated and, and stuff like that? I mean, you know, that that's my take. It's because yeah. it's a marriage. It's not, uh, I mean, you know, it's long term. It depends on your strategy a little bit. I think if you're in the, um, if your value is a philosophy and you're not necessarily screening using metrics, then it makes sense to have a whole lot of other people out there helping you who are looking at stuff if they find something just because it's hard to track down. You like the way somebody thinks when they find something, you're probably going like to like the company too, the business too. So it makes sense to track 13 Fs of Ensemble and the other ones that you've mentioned, Berkshire, so on. Uh, I don't do it because it's not the way I invest, but uh, I haven't been doing that well, so maybe I'll start doing that. <laughs> so here's my here's the next question, Daniel Olshansky. You shouldn't put yourself down like that. You got a good strategy, man. You're gonna win long term. I I heard that you're not supposed to say you're not supposed to criticize the warrior inside because otherwise that that offends the warrior. It's like a Japanese kind of. I think I think I read it in in one of the. Uh, uh, What's the God now I can't think. Clavel, James Clavel, he had that um series Ar- I don't know. Very famous one, Shogun. Um Oh. I mean I know that, but I don't know it. Shogun, Taipan and Guy Jin. I think somewhere in that was you you shouldn't put yourself down because the warrior hears it and the warrior is diminished, so I take that back. I don't want to there diminish go, the yeah. warrior. No, you don't. Value that said, will rise all, again. All of my humor is self-deprecating, so <laughs> I don't know any any other way. I don't mean anything I say, so that's that's how I get away with it. How often do you position your investments, or how how often do you position your investments after a stock had a major drawdown versus finding a company that's undervalued but may still be at a fifty-two week high? Jake, what's the question? I don't. I think he's saying, do you? Do you look at whether a company's at a 52-week high or if it's had a major drawdown before you buy? Does that influence the way that you invest? Used to. I mean, it shouldn't, uh, theoretically, but it probably does for me. I have a hard time buying at a 52-week high. There's just some some sick little goblin inside of me that, that doesn't want to do that. Um, even uh, Guru Focus has this cool little feature I'm not sure if it's not part of the paid or not, but they will take uh, they'll take the highest price to book value and lowest price to book value or earnings or cash flow, a couple different metrics, and they'll then make like bands of it around the stock price. So the stock price is always contained within it, and you can kind of see where is it trading historically to those metrics. And I'm I'm guilty of probably always looking for the one that's down towards the bottom of the band. Like it's, you know, it's, it's the cheapest that it's been in quite a while. Um, that's different that's, to looking at the stock price though. Like you could potentially have something that performs strongly on a fundamental basis, not recognized in the stock trading at the bottom of its bound. That's right. Yeah. It, I do look at what numerator or denominator, which one is, where is it? What's driving the, the so result? What, what we're saying is not that we necessarily, and you're saying the same thing, Bill, not that we necessarily, um, we're not looking at, the stock price but you're looking at the stock price relative to the fundamentals i think that makes sense yeah i look at that uh tom gainer said uh i think it was like two or three markel meetings ago 
He said, when I started out, I used to look at the 52-week lows, and then I realized the 52-week highs might be a better hunting ground. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, I, I think that it really depends on the strategy that you're trying to run and what you're trying to accomplish. If you're looking to put money out today, it's probably better to look among the lows than the highs. If you're looking to sort of accumulate knowledge, studying the highs is probably well, a smarter I don't think strategy. The, the, the problem that you have is that momentum is a real thing. The momentum yeah. factor is real. If you're picking off the 52-week lows lift, list, you're picking companies that have no momentum or negative momentum. That's not a good place to be. You just... But, you're dead for a year doing that on the base rate. You're better off picking. If you're going Only to look one at year? it, sure feels like. Feels well, that's like longer. A, you know, the, it takes a year for if it takes a year for that momentum to work itself off. If you're a value guy, it should be irrelevant to you where you're hunting. To the extent that you have any bias, you should be biased towards a 52-week highs list. But that's a different yeah. question to looking at the fundamentals. For, like I, I think, I think it's hard to justify paying a higher multiple than something has ever been on before or high, the highest multiple I mean highest multiple for the year I guess I would look back over a full history and see where it's traded over its full history but I'd feel very nervous buying something up the highest multiple it's ever traded at yeah well really, then sorry I was go ahead. say it's a it's a really interesting uh thought experiment to see how big the ranges are too it yeah. kind of reminds me of uh Greenblatt would go into like the first class when he was teaching and he'd pull up like 52 week high, 52 week low, and then tell everyone like, do you think that the business really moved that much in the actual intrinsic value? Come on, that's that's silly. But well, it's this possible is now over. because everything's starting at the bottom left hand corner of your screen and going up to the top right hand corner of your screen. The business has got that much better over the course of the year. We're gonna need a bigger screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's the other Zoom thing is you gotta enhance. think through like. Media is trading at a lower multiple than it has historically. That compression is justified. Now, whether or not the outlook changes or not, you know, that's that's sort of a different issue. But I, I don't know that you can look at media today and media of the past and be like, oh, yeah, the same multiple should be warranted. I mean, a lot has changed over the last seven years. So, you know, just you got to be mindful of the of the landscape. And what is it? The map? What do you want to know? Something about terrain. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, the map is not the, the terrain. Uh, it's Korbosinski's yeah. dictum. There you go. That's not yep. over the dicta. That's, uh, that's law. All right, fellas, that was a good episode. Uh, we're running out of time, so let's sign off and we'll see everybody next week. Sounds Here good. Move with the Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13. Sing one, one.